Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 390 featuring Justin Mitchell, VFX supervisor over at Scanline VFX. I had not actually met Justin until I recorded this podcast. He's a super nice guy, but he has been at Scanline for, as, uh, for 14 years. Has definitely has a lot of experience in that area uh, working for Scanline. And it was really great connecting with him and finding out more about all the cool stuff that they do at Scanline. Obviously, we've had people from there on before, but it was really cool to hear Justin's perspective. And he's done such great work there, right, Kristen? Oh, yeah. Uh, he His story is interesting. Kind of, He went from acting school to being a visual effects supervisor. Um, so it's a, that's a very interesting transition. <laughs> he kind of explains that and how it actually helped him with being a VFX soup. So mm-hmm. that's awesome. And then just the movies he's worked on from Final Destination 2, Elf, Super 8, uh, it's a lot of like Marvel films, um, and now Stranger Things 4, which you guys get into a little bit um, in this episode. And his uh, his uh, view on like how he um, manages his team, he says he allows his team to have influence on like what they are creating, but also you know, communicating the vision, the filmmakers. Um, so they all have a collective goal, but he does empower like his team to kind of create, not just push pixels. So that was, that's kind of awesome to hear about. Um, and then you got, you also ask him, like, how do you take like a very vague description of something and turn it into, you know, what we're viewing? And he kind of goes into that and how he does like a lot of reference and style boards. So get to hear about that. And then uh, at the end, you guys also talk about like all the episodic work and how it's changed from his early days to now. So yeah, we get a lot in this episode. We do, we do. We really mm-hmm. get into it with Justin, and I, you know that's actually one of my favorite questions to ask certain visual effects artists, especially those who do things that are simulation based or things of that nature. That uh, that descriptions are hard to come by, vague descriptions, and then the a real talented person in visual effects has the ability to interpret that in some ways or finds ways to get the, the right description out. So it's really cool uh, to do that. And he, like you said, he's done amazing work and it's really cool to see the stuff, especially the cool things on Stranger Things season four that uh, that they did over there. So really nice to hear about that. Okay, we've got a couple of announcements. Uh, so you can find this at chaos.com. The first one obviously is that V-Ray 6 for 3DS Max is out. We've def- That's been out for several weeks. But uh, more, more importantly, actually the public betas for other versions of V-Ray 6 are out as well. Maya is on the public beta, so go check that out if you'd like to get uh, find out more about what's going on in Maya. And then we also just recently released this uh, V-Ray 6 for SketchUp and for Rhino. So go check those all out at chaos.com. Uh, if you have a license, you can check out the public beta and give us your feedback, which is the most important thing of a beta to do. Uh, perfect. Now, we have a couple of events going on. What's happening? Yeah, so you can find these out at chaos.com slash events. The first one is we've been talking about it for a while. It is September 8th and 9th, and it's 24 hours of chaos. So we have... Uh, it's all online and it's 24 hours and it's a series of 12 back-to-back shows um, with uh, 3D artists, designers, VFX, archivists, animation, gaming. So everyone around the world. It's really awesome. But you can find that out. And this is a long one. Chaos.com slash 24 hours dash chaos. But if you just look 24 hours of chaos up, you'll find it. <laughs> 
Perfect. Yes, it's a lot, a lot of fun. Uh, I always mm -hmm. love doing this every year. Our show, the LA Time Zone show, shall we say, West Coast Time Show, is uh, it's pretty cool. It's going to be. Uh, uh, I know that there's some great talks going on, and I'm going to finally get the opportunity to show you guys what I've been doing with some virtual production stuff, uh, including some really cool stuff with Vantage, which I'm sure I'm excited to share with you. So make sure and check it out. Uh, go to chaos.com/events for uh, 24 hours of chaos. But this is not the only event we have. We have other things going on. What's happening, Kristen? Yeah, so on September 15th through 16th, it will be 3D Base Camp in Poland. And then right after that, you will be going to THU again. And that's Malta this year, correct? No, it's in it's back in Portugal. So it's oh, going to be oh, okay. it's, it's going to be in Troy. I'm very excited. I'm going to be recording a bunch of podcasts and meeting with a bunch of people there. I have not been able to really go to an event really <laughs> since the pandemic. So I'm very excited to go back to THU. So if any of you guys are going to THU, make sure and hit me up. And I would love to chat, uh, you know, chat and catch up uh, while we're both in Troya. Uh, and we have one more event. What else is happening? One more. So at the end of September, uh, September 26th through 30th, it, we will have 3D Base Camp in Vancouver. So you can join Chaos and Inscape to discover our latest latest additions to SketchUp. Um, and Lon will be there. So you yep. find him. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of cool stuff happening over there. So go check it out September 26th through 30th. And all of this can be found at chaos.com slash events. So make sure to remember that if you want to remember where all these dates and locations will be. Uh, great. Now, if people want to know more about the podcast, Kristen, where can they go? You can go to facebook.com slash CG Garage Podcast or chaos.com slash CG Garage. And if you'd like to watch us, go to youtube.com slash chaos group TV. Perfect. Uh, again, if you have any suggestions or ideas or feedback on any of the podcasts, welcome to hear, from, love to hear from you. Labs at chaos.com is our email. Again, that is labs at chaos.com. But for now, Please enjoy episode number 390 with Justin Mitchell. Welcome to another CG Garage where the chaos group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're going to fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. Obviously, you, you know, you're very successful uh, uh, VFX supervisor over at Scanline. You're doing some amazing stuff. But I always want to know people's origin stories, and they're always so interesting. So what sort of got you into computer graphics and, and doing the kind of things that you do now? So um, I actually went to college to be an actor, but uh, but after auditioning and not really having any success, uh, I migrated into um, into lighting in in film and television. Uh, and I never really worked on a lot of big uh, productions, but I worked on a lot of B movies. Okay. And uh, after a while, I got tired of logging twenty k's up a wet hill at five o'clock in the morning. And I figured, oh gee, I got to do something something else with my life. So um, I've always loved uh, computer graphics and, and computer animation. And, um, and you know, I was always interested in drama and storytelling for sure, which is why I studied to be a, a, an actor. Um, so, uh, so animation seemed to be like a really good fit, 
you know, it seemed to be um, a way to make a good living, uh, still doing the storytelling and, and filmmaking that I aspired to do, um, but in a bit of a different way. So, um, so we started out uh, in, in television, uh, got my first gig um, doing a night shift, actually, and uh, working in 3D Studio Max um, at, uh, at Hollywood Digital West. Right. And uh, I was doing a show called The Invisible Man, primarily. We did some, some commercials and that kind of thing as well. Um, worked on Charmed and, uh, and some other sort of series like that. So really like quick day turnaround shots, which was great for really cutting my teeth in visual effects. I really learned how to, uh, to, to track how to light, how to composite, like really the whole gamut, which um, I didn't know it at the time, but has since really served me as a VFX supervisor because I have a very broad understanding of the whole effects process. Uh, so it really helps in, in talking to artists, but also knowing how to lie, cheat and steal where needed in order to get the end result in a, in a timely and cost-efficient manner without necessarily sacrificing uh, a cool-looking shot. But, uh, but, yeah, but I, so mean, generalists, I mean, generalists were, were really big in the episodic world back then. And that, but what's interesting is that the generalist concept is, is popular again. It, it, I think a lot of people are looking at generalists as people who can really sort of uh, be a spe- create something from all pieces and make it more efficient in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think it's of great value. Um, I I love working with generalists, and I, I think we kind of moved into a paradigm in at least in tentpole uh, feature production, where people became very very specialized, um, and they work on a small piece of the production pipeline, um, uh, tiny oftentimes, and. And then, so if they're asked to do something outside their tool set, they become very sort of challenged. Um, and that definitely has its place, you know, uh, in, in a big production pipeline for sure. But there is a lot to be said for someone that is uh, a jack of many trades and perhaps a master of just two or three. Um, because uh, when you have to kick things to other departments, that takes time. Right. Um, and that can often slow down, particularly when you're turning and burning. I mean, you know, Stranger Things uh, season four definitely has bigger budgets than many episodic television shows do. But uh, even still, relative to uh, like a tentpole feature film, it's just it's different. You just don't have as much time. So you need to produce a lot of content very quickly and efficiently. Right, right. Okay, so you cut your teeth over at Hollywood Digital West, right? Uh, that was a pretty yeah. cool place back in the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Eventually it became yep. Encore. Well, I moved to Encore. Um, and from there, uh, I went to um, Digital oh, Dimension, right. which was uh, like a smaller shop in the uh, boutique kind of shop in the, in the valley um, where 3D Studio Max was really like the the render uh, the, the mm-hmm. package of choice and and v-ray was the render of choice and i believe one of the first uh, movies to really sort of use v-ray was actually from digital dimension uh and it was uh final destination 2 i think 
Yeah, Final Destination. Yeah, right. I worked on Final Destination. Yeah, with all of the shots the logs of like the, yeah. the logs like bouncing off the coming off the truck and bouncing on yeah. the ground and stuff. Yeah. I so that on was one of the first the first things yeah. done in, in V Ray in a feature film. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well it's certainly grown yeah. a lot since then and, and now yeah. it's everywhere. Um, which is great because it's an awesome tool, so um and yeah, so I spent I think about seven years at Digital Dimension and then uh, then I left for a year and I went to uh, a small house that does um, uh, kind of made for TV movies called Larry Levinson mm. Productions. And that was just a sort of short, short stint. But I got some uh, experience as a VFX supervisor there uh, before moving on and joining Scanline in 2009, oh, okay. I think it was. Uh, and 2012 was the, the first show right. I worked on there. Um, when I joined Scanline in Los Angeles, I think we were about 10 people, and uh, though they had some history in Germany, to be sure, uh, and now we're 1,300 people or something like that worldwide. We've got offices all around wow. the world. So yeah. things have changed. Um, yeah, we've grown a lot, but uh, it's been a been a fun ride. Right. So, so since you were at the sort of you know at the very beginnings of the Scanline, at least the, at least the LA presence, as you mentioned. I mean, uh, how how well, you know, how well did you get to know and, and work with, with Flowline and some of the things that's uh, with obviously all their fluid stuff? Uh, yeah. Very well, yeah. So I I really my work at at Scanline I worked as an effects oh. TD initially, um, so I've done some of that at, at Digital Dimension, um, thinking particles um, and uh, fume effects. Um, tools like that. But of course, when I came to Scanline, I, uh, I did a lot of Thinking Particles work, but I also did quite a lot of Flowline work. We went through some training um, and uh, it started really in 2012 doing like big fluid sims. Yep. And, um, yeah. So at the time, it was definitely uh, cutting edge, state of the art fluid software, and we've continued to, to develop it. But uh, you know, a lot of other tool sets have grown right. since then. Well, I just, I think it'd be great. I mean, I, I obviously know what Flowline is and I've been <laughs> working. Chaos has yeah. been working with you guys specifically to, to, to integrate itself into Flowline. But can you explain a little bit, you know, right. for the audience, what, what, what is in Flowline and why is it special and what made it so important when it started? And obviously it still is very important today. Yeah. So Flowline, Flowline is a, um, it's a fluid effects mm -hmm. system. So it's for doing uh, water and smoke uh, and fire and things of that nature. Um, and uh, I think what makes Flowline unique and what really made it powerful at the time was that its ability to, to divide sims uh, across multiple machines and do huge calculations with uh, hundreds of millions of particles uh, across the mm. network. So really, we were able to do fluids on a scale that most people could not because uh, computationally it's very expensive and the amount of uh, RAM that was required was very extreme. So um, a lot of our, our success and the power of Flowline uh, related to its connection to the network. Uh, in the render farm or the simulation farm, in this case, right? And I think I remember, you know, 
Scanline uh, in, in LA for, for an office that wasn't that big had a huge amount of computer power <laughs> that they were using, right? Yes. So that was one of the investments that Stefan yeah. made, right? Is that you looked at that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It was really, we, um, it was such an important part of the equation, really. So we invested heavily uh, in mm-hmm. infrastructure. Um, and that allowed us to sort of iterate to me, uh, quality on feature films or television or really any, any visual effects is very much connected to iterations. The more times you can turn something around, the better it looks. Um, so, yeah, it's paramount to have enough computing power to be able to, to run sims over and over again until you get the right result. Yeah. And how hard is it to get the right sim? <laughs> Uh, it's pretty tricky sometimes. I mean, you know, over the years, you kind of learn uh, some tricks to get there. But I, I've, I've often described my job to, to people as, as like standing at the, stop, at the top of a staircase with a ball and there's like a cup at the bottom of the staircase and you're trying to get the, the ball to land in the cup by bouncing it down the steps. And so uh, it takes a lot of tries to get there and you sort of play around with, oh, maybe I bounce it off the wall. Maybe it's two bounces. Maybe it's five bounces. Yeah. So there's like, um, there's part of it that's calculated. There's part of it that's, you know, accidental magic that happens. Um, And it's really about learning how to nudge like simulation. You don't really have explicit control. Of course, we design things and, and, and ultimately get the result that we want. But but it's really more like guiding the simulation rather than explicitly drive, driving right. it. And what about direction? Like, yeah. you know, for example, there's always a struggle between, you know, sp- certain directors, for example, say, no, I wanted to do this. It's like, but well, <laughs> it's, is it possible to do that? Yeah. Sometimes it's, yeah, sometimes it, it, it may not be possible or realistic. Um, but you have to find a way. And sometimes you have to just interpret uh, a note that, that asks you to, to do something and and uh, that might not be physically plausible, but you need to, rather than be literal, capture the essence of that note and say, well, they're looking for energy. They're looking for some big explosive moment. It's not really important that it hits right here in this right. moment, you know? It, yeah. Yeah, so. that's definitely, I've always had a, you know, a fascination with, uh, with, uh, fluid sims and different types of simulations that happen and because it's so it's so hard to direct that you know um and I've, yeah. uh, it's always been something that you know i've been i've been curious about and sometimes things get art directed into not looking real uh and those are very challenging yes. to deal with <laughs> yeah sometimes people can be their own worst enemy um uh, but uh yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely Okay, well, tell us a little bit about, you know, obviously, since 2009, that's quite a long time. Obviously, you're coming up on 13, 13 years <laughs> uh, at Scanline, right? Yeah. So that's, a, that's quite a, I'm an old dog now, <laughs> quite a <yes>. stint. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, tell us a little bit about some of your favorite projects that you worked on. Uh, let's see. Well, 2012 was a great one. I mean, really, like we were doing stuff that just kind of hadn't been seen before. So that you're was doing the big awesome. ships that goes into the water. Uh, and I'm assuming those. Yeah. 
Yeah, yes, and and um, yeah, like uh, giant waves crashing into the White House, and uh, you know, over the Himalayas, and all of that kind of thing. So, uh, so that was a lot of fun. Um, let's see, I worked on Iron Man Three. Was a a cool one that I have nice. a lot of fun memories about. I was a CG supervisor on that. Uh, in that. Um, we worked on a lot of different parts of it, but we did the uh, the sequence where the helicopters attack Tony Hawk's, uh, Tony's uh, mansion in yeah in Malibu. Uh, so all of these rockets come in and and uh, the, the mansion basically collapses collapses or partially collapses, and then half of it slides down the hill and goes right. into the drink. So. Uh, yeah, that was that was one of my first shows as a CG supervisor. That was when I sort of um, uh, got to wear a bit of a different hat. So that was fun. Um, let's see. Uh, I think um, Tomb Raider nice. was another really yeah. fun one that we did. Uh, so that we did. Um, uh, Lara falls into a river and is washed downstream towards uh, a waterfall and ultimately grabs onto a, uh, a plane, like an old plane. I think it was like a World War II plane that had crashed years ago and was all rusted out and decaying and precariously positioned at the edge of this waterfall. And uh, she manages to grab onto it uh, rather than going over the edge of the waterfall. But that uh, it's an old plane, so it's sort of collapsing right. underneath her. So that was a fun, fun show. A lot of environment work on that, and of course some flow line right. work. Uh, one of yeah. my favorite sequences. I mean, I just lots of sequences. Obviously, a scanline that I adore. But one of my favorite one that always stuck out to me, uh, and I still, it's just, I just think of it all the time. It's, it's uh, the train sequence in Super Eight. I don't know if you had worked on that one as well. Right. Yeah, I did. I did. I did. So I, that I did a lot of. Uh, uh, thinking particles work of like the as the, the the train crashes and debris shoots up into the right. air, um, as well as like a lot of flow line work in that too. Too with uh, for that we did a lot of fire sims, a dirt sims that were done in in flow line as well. Yeah. So yeah, that was definitely a fun Great. one. Great. So, so it, it, obviously you said you started over at Scanline when there was, you know, 10 people and now there's 1,300 people and many offices and the uh, company has grown quite a bit. Yeah. So Something like what, that. what have yes, you, you yes. know, how has, how has that growth uh, affected you and affected the company? How have you noticed changes uh, uh, in general over that time? Um. So it's, you know, I mean, I've obviously grown into new roles, so that's been a big change for me. Um, I'm still actually on the box sometimes. I, I like to keep my, get my hands dirty and, uh, and it's, a, it's a strange sort of meditation to do some shot work uh, as well. So even on Stranger Things, I did some shot work. Um, so, uh, though I certainly don't do as right. much as I used to. So uh, for me, I've really like learned a whole, whole new uh, set of skills and I'm definitely still evolving. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to be a good 
artist, but it's a very it's a very different thing to be a good supervisor. Uh, and I don't even know if I am a good supervisor, but I you know like I, I think I make pretty shots, but the the, the management of people is still an ever uh, evolving skill that uh, I learn more each show to be sure. So it's really about how to get the best out of people um, within the, the constraints of their skills and the time frame and the budgets and all of that. Kind and have, of have you, how, um, how has that been challenging for you, you know, to do that? And what, what were this, you know, to think about directing people? And yeah, I think so. I think I wasn't like, I'm not a, yeah, I, I'm not a inherently gregarious uh, mm -hmm. person. Uh, and I think that I, um, yeah, I think like leading people and inspiring them was a personal challenge for me. And I had to kind of find my own way to do it. I think that that was important for me to, to, to accept that I'm not like some other supervisors who, who I admired, you know, I, you know, you could kind of find your own way and, Obviously, in the visual effects world, uh, there's a lot of socially odd people, and I probably am one of those people, and fit into that uh, that group. And I think as long as you're honest about who you are and fair with people, it all works yeah, out. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure, but you know, I, you're... so yeah, so still, still, still evolving. But but uh, what was your first? What was your first show that you supervised? That you were a VFX supervisor at Scanline. Uh, so it was actually television. It was Cosmos. It was uh, the latest right. uh, season of Cosmos with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, yeah. And I worked on that with uh, Jeff Oaken. He was the client side supervisor. Nice. Um, Jeff, who who uh, was one of the founders of the VES, so that was a mm -hmm. real uh, treasure to get to to meet and work with him. Um, yeah, and it was a fun show because it was a lot of diverse effects. We did some sort of um, uh, planetary type work. Uh, there was a whole kind of frozen planet of Enceladus um, that we did where we sort of dove down into these sort of uh, subterranean caverns and um, really explored the... Um, the, orange, the origins of life with all of these sort of microbes forming at the bottom of oceans. Uh, and there was uh, some some work with, um, what are they called now? The um, worms that, uh, that basically, that, like sea worms, I think they were called or something like mm -hmm. that, that... Uh, that are swimming around um, some of the earliest sort of forms of, of life. Uh, yeah, so that was, and then we did a whole thing with um, mycelium, which is this sort of connective uh, fibrous tissue that's connected to mushrooms and is a bit of a, uh, like a network that moves under the ground that allows plants to communicate with each other. Um, right. So yeah, it was a it was a it was a fun show because it was diverse. There was a lot of different um, types of effects. Really, kind of took me back to my roots of being uh, um, fast turnaround. Uh, a lot of you know quick and dirty tricks, um, both in three D and in compositing, uh, to get the job done. 
That's cool. That's cool. I'm I I yeah, I love those types of things. And I think, I mean, I've always been a big fan of Cosmos and Neil deGrasse Tyson was a great person. Did you get to work with him uh, more directly? No, or did I didn't. You I never not? got to meet right. Neil, no, no. Okay. But yeah, he's a, he's a, right. a cool cat. I like, I like Neil. He is, he is. I was just actually just watching him trying to explain to people what, why the importance of the, the James Webb telescope images. Oh, yeah, like, that's <laughs> so is. amazing. Yeah. I was just looking at that last night. It is. It's mind-boggling what we're going to discover from that. It's so cool. Uh, I, was, I was trying to understand it, and I realized like the curve is like the bending of space <laughs> that yes. we're seeing in those galaxies. Yeah, super it's cool. crazy. Yeah, and, I was, and amazing to think about. Um, yeah, I was talking to my wife about that, and they were talking about how the images are actually of things that are billions of years ago, right? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and she's like, how can that be? I'm like, well, that light took that long to get to the camera that's just how long it takes yeah. so we're really it's looking like looking back at a time history. machine it could set us <laughs> yeah, up for disappointment yeah. though you know i can imagine we see some sort of alien life form out there only to realize that they went extinct uh a few million years ago uh, let's yep. hope not but yep. uh yep. but yeah that's yeah, awesome that's... i i'm a big uh a fan of, of science um so that's great that's awesome. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, you, you, you mentioned you went to school for, for, for acting, and yes. that was something you were interested in doing. Have you, have you felt that some of those things that you've been doing for acting has helped uh, in a lot of ways? Uh, I'm ima- I can imagine as a VFX supervisor, being able to give direction and understanding things on how things need to be, maybe some of those acting skills uh, or things you learned in acting has uh, contributed to that. Yeah, they they actually have, I think, strange as it might sound. Um, I mean, certainly I did a lot of lighting when I was in acting school too. You know, when you're putting on plays, mm-hmm. you you don't really have a whole crew to, to do uh, all of the stage work for you. So I got familiar with lighting and three-point lighting. And as I mentioned, I did that in, in, some, in some film and television uh, as well. So that definitely has served me because really like, and there's one of the things that drew me to, to, uh, to 3D animation and visual effects is that it's basically like a, a stage, like a, you know, the viewport into 3D Studio Max or Maya or whatever is basically like a stage and you're just dressing it with props and setting up lights and telling a little story. Um, so f- from that standpoint, uh, it, that experience definitely helped me. But even really from... Um, a storytelling or directing uh, standpoint, I think it really serves. Like one of the things that people don't don't um, think enough about when designing visual effects shots is that they're really stories. Like you're you're telling a story even in a single shot, um, and that might sound like I'm kind of trying to make a bit of a meal out of it, but it's it's really true that even in the simplest sense, if a you know like let's say that it's about a wave that's uh, that's barreling down a street. Well, a wave barreling down a street is kind of vague and, and, and unachievable and really not that interesting to look at. You need to, you need to create moments for the audience to follow um, and you need to tell a little bit of a story. So the wave then uh, smashes into a, um, a vendor's cart uh, and then it it, uh, it turns around a corner and then a couple of cars narrowly miss um, crashing into that wave. And, but, but because the wave is there, the, the, the car like goes into a storefront or something. 
Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, you, I always try to think about beats in a visual effect shot and, and tell a bit of a story to make it more interesting. Now that the audience, I think, doesn't really um, fully appreciate that that's what's going on, but inherently they're entertained and they can, they can follow along. And of course, uh, ultimately visual effects are there to, uh, to, to serve the filmmaker's vision which is really to tell a story. So how can you participate in that? Or how can I participate in that and, uh, and serve the story and uh, the genre of the project that I'm working on? Yeah, yeah, I, I can imagine those are challenges that are very, very interesting to, uh, to deal with. Uh, and also really cool. And it sounds, you know, you have a passion for filmmaking. I do. <laughs> obviously. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think that you're not just trying to get the, the, the technical challenges. You're trying to tell a story at the same time. I think that's a really important yeah. task. And, and, and make things that are visually pleasing as well, right? Like it's... Uh, sure. Um, palette is very important and um, color and photography. And there's just a lot of different elements that go into filmmaking. And one of the joys of being a visual effects artist is I don't always get to design the shots from the ground up, but I get a lot of influence in them. Um, right. And I also try to allow um, my team to have a good amount of influence too. Uh, I think it's very important that people take ownership of things and um, uh, and and to that end I think it's really part of an important part of my job is to really communicate the vision ultimately the vision of the filmmakers not my not my vision but sort of our collective goal getting it all on the same uh, path is 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 critical I think but sure. empowering people towards that goal so that they you know nobody wants to feel like they're just um, pushing pixels, you know? Everyone right. wants to, to contribute and do something cool, and uh, I hope that I allow that to happen. Yeah. Uh, I have an interesting question for you. Back when I used to be a supervisor and used to do things, one of the challenging things, especially when we're dealing with certain effects or fluids or things of that nature, is does someone you know, in a script or even the, the director or in whatever the treatment is, there's a description of something that's very vague <laughs> or, or seems to be clear but is very difficult to, to, to interpret, mm -hmm. right? So, for example... I worked on a on a commercial where they uh, they said okay the, the the sunroof opens on the car, and a vortex goes in, and then mm -hmm. so the term vortex turns out there's a million ways to interpret that and what it looks like. Yeah. <laughs> so how how do you like have you met some of those challenges and how do you sort of deal with that stuff? Yeah, um, yeah, the devil is in the details, really. Uh, right. And it's very important. Specificity is, is very important. Uh, and sometimes you don't get that from a director or uh, a client-side supervisor. Um, but you got to kind of roll with that because you got to do, you got to work with what you got. Right. So um, I definitely try to, to lean on reference. I'm a big believer in reference. And I, I go on yep. these... Uh, uh, hunting missions to find reference and um, you know I, I, I like to put together like style boards get like a whole collection of different images of something so I don't know if I was doing a vortex I probably would search for vortex on uh, Google and then grab a bunch of videos and um, 
uh, and images and you know put together like a contact sheet sort of showing it all and just trying to figure out well what serves us to tell the story of this vortex entering the car um, right. so that's probably what I how I approach it yeah, that's good. That's great advice. Uh, great advice. I think that's another thing that you know we do a lot as visual effects people is we look at a lot of reference, and I think that that, that reference is, is key to us making sure that we, we get things to look the way they do. Yeah, I mean, we all make assumptions about our world, and sometimes, um, you know, what we... It, it's it's kind of like being a kid drawing, you know, or being a beginning, beginning artist, like a 2D artist. You look at a kid's drawing and... and you know, there's simple shapes and stick figures and things aren't really, the, the perspective isn't correct. Um, and, but it's a representation of ideas that are in the kid's head, which is great. And it's great for telling a story and certainly not everything needs to look realistic. Um, but even as adults, we have certain ideas about the world, like how bright something is or how fast it moves or how, you know, how big it should be. And sometimes we're just wrong. You know, like what we right. think a thing is, isn't really what it is. So it's important to sort of always ground yourself, take yourself back to that reference uh, and remind ourselves of the way the world really looks, and particularly the way it looks in like a flattened two-dimensional space versus uh, in the three-dimensional world that we walk around in. Right. Right, I think that's that's a that's a great to uh, to do to talk about that. Uh, I I have questions. I mean, you started off working on TV episodic stuff, right? Yeah, way back in the day, and you mentioned those are you know quick turnarounds, very fast doing them, you know, night shifts, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then obviously you worked on some of the biggest films of the year, <laughs> yeah, the the big tentpole films yes. after that. Uh, and today you're working on also some some uh, I'm going to call it quote-unquote episodic work because yeah. the world has changed quite a bit in that in that area. Sure How is. do you, you know, having been sort of worked on the early days of episodic work and now seeing stuff like, you know, Stranger Things or Cosmos or, or uh, you worked on another big one. Which one was that? It was, um, oh, The Nevers, the Nevers right? Yeah. So. Uh, how has how has that sort of uh, uh, changed, like in terms of the amount of work that you guys are doing, the scopes of these things? Yeah, I mean the game has definitely changed. Uh, streaming has has and continues to uh, to redefine. It's really its own medium, a different genre now, um, and uh, you know when you've the biggest players in entertainment. Uh, are now creating content for a streaming medium. You know, uh, HBO obviously, and uh, you know Disney. Um, all of the biggest players are out out there are competing uh, in a streaming streaming world. So, I would say that it it lands probably now closer to to the production cycles of features than it does the episodic um, world of yesterday. Uh, certainly the turnarounds are, are nowhere near as quick. We're, we're not doing day turnarounds on shots. I mean, I worked on Stranger Things for about a year and uh, we had like 220 odd shots in the, at the end of the day. Um, now we weren't going flat chat for 
all of that time, there was definitely some ramp up and some development and um, like the being in full production was probably more like uh, eight or nine months or something. But, but uh, you have a lot more time for sure, uh, but not necessarily like the same budgets and therefore not the same resources as a full feature film. Mm -hmm. I mean, the last, the last uh, episode of Stranger Things 4, which was uh, episode 9, which was the one that we had the most work in, we did about 100 shots in that, in that uh, episode, that uh, was took two and a half hours long, just that episode along, alone. So, you know, like that is... That's a feature that's film. That's a feature <laughs> film by itself, right? And, and, it, right. and it wasn't just that there was two or three visual effects in it. I mean, there was, I don't know how many there are in that particular episode, but over the right. season of Stranger Things, I think it was something like 3,000 visual effects shots or something. It's huge. Um, yeah. So it's really a, a game changer. And that really um, spans the gamut from invisible cleanup type effects work all the way to you know large scale uh, destruction and environment work and creatures and, you know, yeah. It was interesting also hearing from a couple of people who've been sort of doing the episodic world for so long, how the seasons have changed a little bit, right? The deadlines are different for episodic work yeah. because uh, be for streaming work more specifically, because they're not necessarily tied to the, the fall season opening and then the finale in the spring, you yeah. know, or whatever that is. So uh, there's more somewhat more flexibility in terms of what you're doing I'm, I'm assuming <laughs> uh, as far as like deliveries you mean yeah yeah so um, yeah that's true I mean so we, we Stranger Things released in two volumes uh, right so we sort of had two deadlines uh, for this season and one of the things that is uh, that's quite different from the uh, the episodic of yesteryear was how quickly they can get new content onto servers, uh, and therefore how late in the game you can actually deliver things. We were actually right. working on visual effects shots like the the day before Volume Two was released. You know? Oh wow! So really, like how late in the game um, you can continue working on things has has been a bit of a game changer, and uh, yeah, if I'm candid, a little bit of a terrifying one, because yeah. uh, there there is something to be said for a, a deadline as a cutoff point to when when the uh, the train stops, and you know those those last few months are they're pretty intense. Uh, yeah. A lot of hours and a lot of hard work, and you know, happy to do it, and and thought we did some cool stuff, but but uh, you know, you can only do that for so long. Right, right. I mean, it's interesting. I've heard similar things on feature films because you know, back when I first started in visual effects and features, uh, you know, we're still filming things out onto film. They weren't doing digital projectors as much, right? Yeah. So I've been around for a little, <laughs> a little bit, yeah. but you had to. You know that you had to be done like a month before the film comes out because you had they had to right. print all the reels, yeah. they had to ship them out to the stu to the st theaters, yes. and now their your film is all uploaded to an FTP site. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, completely. And I mean, so people are doing it a couple days before the movie is released. They're still working on some of these shots. It's just wild, and I I can sort of see that 
moving into like a, a, a paradigm where a show could continue to evolve. I think it's actually kind of right. a fascinating idea. I mean, I wouldn't really want to do it um, in in the way that it was, say, say like the the uh, the updates to Star Wars uh, episodes, like you know four, five, and six. Right, it went back and mm-hmm. polished up some of the effects work in 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 those re-releases. But uh, I think it's kind of interesting from a storytelling standpoint that a show could be a living creature and evolve mm-hmm. a little bit like a choose your own adventure sort of thing where yeah. something new happens this like you go back and you watch the same uh season but it's changed you know or maybe there's right. like and maybe later on an audience could then navigate through those changes and you could make choices it's kind of a fascinating idea but uh i shouldn't suggest that because i might never sleep again yeah. <laughs> well, it certainly it certainly does offer the idea of rewatchability, right? So yeah. you you know you're you're not going to watch se- you're not necessarily going to watch season one of Stranger Things again. But <laughs> if they had something important in it, or they added some parts of it that's important to season four, yes, then that could be an interesting thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. Although the kids would have to get younger, which would be hard. But we can still yeah, that's we a can still challenge make that in that show. Is you, you're, you're fighting the aging process. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, everyone's growing up super quick, and of course, um, we haven't really talked about it. But but the pandemic, of course, played into all of this as well. Right. Uh, I wasn't really in. I mean, we're all still kind of in a pandemic, I guess. But uh, yeah. But uh, it didn't affect me on on Stranger Things the way it did during the Nevers, which actually like that shut down production and we actually had to change the way we did some work on the nevers uh based on the pandemic because they had you know limited number of uh, cast and crew that could work on shots and so we had for example uh we created a digital environment where there was planned to be a, a set built uh and mm. we, we we created crowds where there was supposed to be large numbers of extras and that kind of thing but um uh, so it didn't it didn't really affect me directly in that sense on Stranger Things, but it did affect the production of Stranger Things because they were shooting it during that time. So that that meant that the you know it took a long time for between uh, season three and and season four on Stranger Things. Uh, right. Um, so yeah, that definitely has has an effect. Yeah. What What are your okay? What obviously you know you're you're. You're working from home. I'm working from home too, and this has sort of changed a little bit of yeah. what we do. How has that affected you? And have you been able to still uh, feel effective doing what you need to do for where you are? Yeah. Yes. I. I, I think so. I've still managed to be effective, um, and maybe even more effective in some ways. Mm. Um, it probably means that I work more than I should, because it's right there, and I jump on, and I can do that at you know. Um, one o'clock in the morning if I need to and uh, certainly when you're checking on renders um, you know it, it can be a very helpful thing um, I, I said earlier that iterations are have a direct relationship to quality in in effects work and uh, the ability to jump on at two o'clock in the morning or whatever check a render and say oh no that's not working let me just requeue it um, or give a little bit more feedback to this artist or, you know, and I've got people working 
kind of around the world, so sometimes they're in different time zones, so getting a little bit of feedback uh, to somebody in Montreal late at night might mean that they can jump on that note early in their morning. Right. Um, so I'm probably more productive from that standpoint. But as far as uh, supervising and interacting with my team, it, it honestly hasn't changed so much for me because the vast majority of my team are in other places in the world. Um, okay. Primarily Canada is where the vast mm -hmm. majority of the team is um, for Stranger Things. And that, that uh, you know, that's something that happened uh, years ago that there was um, tax incentives that popped up around the, the world and, uh, and studios and companies had to pursue those uh, incentives because it makes huge financial sense. I mean, what we do is crazy expensive. You know, the, the visual effects world, it's just mind-boggling the money that's spent on, on films in general, but certainly on visual effects. So um, we, we need to always try to figure out how to do more, faster, cheaper, um, not even really in a race to the bottom, but just to produce like more content uh, more quickly because there's certainly a huge demand for, for content as well. So I've, even when I was going into the office in LA, I was often video conferencing with teams around the world. We had this... Uh, this video conferencing system called iLine. Um, and iLine was basically like Zoom, um, but right. where I could be in a theater and share a screen. In that case, it was actually like a real, you know, full-size projector, a, a full-size screen, theatrical type screen. Um, and I could see my team on the other side, you know, of the, the video conferencing uh, system and they were in a theater looking at their in their cinema in Vancouver mm -hmm. uh, or Montreal and uh, and we would work that way so I was kind of used to working remotely and communicating like that um, I spent a lot of time on the phone uh, and and sharing screens with people and we use RV um, as 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 a Flipbook tool, so we are, you know, sharing RV sessions and writing up notes in ShotGrid, and so we had a lot of the tools um, to do that sort of remote work anyway. And we were actually very right. fortunate as a company because we were we were very well positioned for that. Um, we work uh, over a system called PC over IP, which is basically mm -hmm. like remote desktop. And even when we were in the office, we were working that way. So we didn't actually have a physical workstation next to our desk. It was all in the server room, and we connect to it, um, you know, over the uh, the Ethernet. And mm -hmm. uh, and so taking your computer home is basically just taking a pod. Uh, you know, the PC over IP works with a, you know, compression system. So we take that compression system and 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 a couple of monitors home, and we're connected. Right. And I can work that way from anywhere uh, around the world. I'm going to go to right. Australia in a couple of weeks' time for a visit, and uh, and I'll have a system with me, and I'll be able to work from the other side of the world. You know. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really that's really cool, and I think it's pretty pretty interesting. Uh, you do you guys are doing that. 
Um, speaking of the pandemic and also speaking, you mentioned iLine, I know, but you guys also have another branch of Scanline called iLine that is, you know, focused on virtual production. Yeah, stuff, iLine right? Studios. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I haven't had uh, a lot of involvement with that personally, but yes, it's, uh, yeah, it's true. It's like we have a, uh, it's an LED stage um, and, uh, and, and volume capture system. Uh, yeah, we're really start, starting to ex explore the bounds of, of what's possible and, and, uh, and more and more starting to use that, that tech in productions of all sizes. Yeah. What, what, is your, what are your thoughts on, um, on specifically the, uh, virtual production? And, you know, the, obviously LED stages really started to just go booming during yeah. the pandemic. Everyone thought they were going to solve all their problems with LED stages. Yeah. Uh, but what are your thoughts about virtual production and how that's going to affect things? And you, I know you're a big fan of iteration and virtual production allows you to iterate in a much quicker way. In it does. Ways, and, right? and, you know, you kind of get what you, uh, you capture what you need in camera potentially, which is pretty amazing. Uh, of course, you have to be ready to do that. So you kind of have to, like, there's a lot more pre-production, I guess, involved in, in uh, virtual production. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it definitely uh, allows for a lot more, a uh, lot faster turnaround once you're on set. Obviously, you can control the environment, um, which is really critical. I think we're getting to the point where the, um, you know, the render, real-time render engines are, uh, are starting to be good enough that they could work as full digital environment replacements. Um, uh, so we like set up with Unreal in uh, in our studio. Um, that said, I think it also has its limitations. You know, it it it, it it's never that never looks quite to me at least. It doesn't look quite as good as the as a traditional visual effects shot uh, just yet. Yep. I think it's very effective for certain types of photography. You know, probably like. Like uh, the shots that were often done as visual effects shots, like car shots, you know, um, yeah. people that, that are driving in a car and talking where you can really like have the reflections wrapping around the car and, and, uh, and you can control the sound and the lighting in right. that environment. I think it's very effective for that. Um, I'm really curious about how augmented reality is going to converge or compete with that technology. I, I think it's really going to be a bit of a, a race uh, to the finishing line there. Because I, I see it us getting into a world where augmented reality um, really allows us to, to invent imagery uh, using, I don't even know what the tool sets are going to be. I mean, you know, I sort of played around with uh, Mid Journey recently, mm -hmm. like the AI tool, which is, it's fun. It feels a little bit like a toy right now. And I don't really feel like I have artistic control. I'm just sort of typing things in. I think it's what, learning. Yeah. I think they're, everyone's playing with it and they're using that to teach it more stuff. So yeah, it could, could be, but you can certainly see that evolving. Like I can imagine a a paradigm where if I'm trying to make a certain creature or effect, you sort of, you know, it's almost like mad science. Remember in mad science when the, the kids were trying to create their perfect woman and they were feeding in things into the computer, like the scanning. Yeah, 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 scanning yeah, yeah. Oh, weird science, weird oh, science. Weird science, yes. Yeah. Uh, and 
Yeah, I can imagine something like that where you feed in, you know, like I was talking about my style boards or my reference. Like if you right. feed in a whole bunch of reference to, uh, you know, to a data set and then let the computer go wild and, you know, start creating yeah. options and you can create variants based on that, you know, so. Yeah, we were talking about it. It's uh, the idea of like, how is things like these AI tools and mid-journey, obviously, once they mature and evolve, how is it going to affect the worlds of concept artists and how that? And so we, I don't think it's going to replace necessarily concept artists, but it's certainly going to reduce the amount of time that we need to spend with them because <laughs> there's going to be some brainstorming that's going to happen through AI tools that are probably going to affect uh, some of the decision-making that I think is going to happen. Yeah, I, I think it's just going to be an extension of the artistic process. I don't think, I mean... Sure. Yes, it could certainly allow, like, lay people, like, if you put in together a presentation or something, you just type something in, you can get an image that looks like what you want. But uh, when you're really trying to create a certain type of look or effect, I think it'll just mean, like, for example, you could take... Um, an existing plate and say, I want to relight the plate. I need to change the light so that it's on this side of the actor's face so that it works within my 3D environment or something like that. Or right. I want to change my environment to my background plate to look like, you know, the way, the way that the actors look. Like That's a challenge that I run into on a daily. Um, right. And and I think AI would be able to... to, to uh, analyze the image and figure out how to recreate uh, yeah. that lighting. I mean, deep fake is for sure going to be uh, a game changer, right? Like digi-doubles uh, will quickly become a thing of the past. Once you're able to, to easily do a face or body replacement on a stunt person, uh, I mean, there's limits to what stunt people can do too, of course, but... right. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's going to be a, a huge game changer. And there's a lot of excitement about uh, virtual production. I think it's definitely got uh, its merits and uh, it's another important tool. But I think the AI will also be groundbreaking and reinventing our industry in ways that we we don't even know yet. For sure, yeah. for sure. And you, you know, I mean, you mentioned that you know it it, it only looks so good in the certain areas of, of, of the real-time technology. Yeah. That's actually a problem that I've been trying to work with because I think real-time is an absolutely critical thing and I absolutely love iterations, but I'm working on trying to get uh, uh, some of some some of the V-Ray uh, and Vantage real-time ray tracing inside of Unreal so that we can basically get a, a much closer look to things that would represent basically I what you're trying awesome. to achieve. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'd love to see. You guys and do that. by the way, Paul DeBevic has sort of one of the things he developed at Google. He's no, he's actually at Netflix now, I think. But he's no. As am I. Uh, yeah, as as are you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he developed a, he developed a facial relighting tool, so it analyzes the light of the yeah. uh, of of the thing, and then you, you can change the lighting, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. That's really cool. Well, listen, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but this has been absolutely incredible talking to you, Justin. I appreciate this. Uh, congratulations on all the incredible work that you've done. Uh, and I heard that you guys got nominated for a, for a VFX Emmy for Stranger Things. Is that correct? Uh, is that correct? I, I don't know. I, I think it I is. I didn't get that memo. <laughs> I think I did see a posting. Uh, I know that they were planning okay. on, uh, on, on, on submitting it. So 
Uh, I hope so. I, I so think the, it. I think it happened. Yeah. So I will. We'll have to check after this. Okay. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll have to cut this part of the podcast. Out kind of if I was wrong, and I feel bad. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I think you're probably right. And uh, and there's certainly there's a lot of awesome work uh, that was done, um, you know, both by us but by a lot of other facilities that worked on it as well. I think it's just a, a fun show, and I can't wait to see what they um, what they do in season five. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Thanks, Justin. Thanks. See ya.